Please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. chapter 14, we'll be reading from the whole chapter. Luke chapter 14 verse 1 And it came to pass as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath that they watched him. And behold, there was a certain man before him which had the, the dropsy. And Jesus answering spake unto the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And they held their peace. And he took him and healed him and let him go. And answered them, saying, Which of you shall have an ass or an ox fallen into a pit, and will not straightway put him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him again to these things. And he put forth a parable to those which were bidden, when he marked how they chose out the chief rooms, saying unto them, When thou art bidding of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honourable man than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee, and him come and say to thee, Give this man place. And thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. But when thou art bidden to go, sorry, but when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room. And when he that bid thee cometh, he may say unto thee, Friend, go up higher. Then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. For whosoever is exalted himself shall be abased. And he that humbled himself shall be exalted. Then said he also to him that bade him, When thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbor, lest they also bid thee again, and a recompense be made thee. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. And when one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things, said unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then said he unto him, A certain man made a great supper and bade many, and said his servants, sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. Another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. 
So that servant came and shoot his lord Jesus. Then the master of the house being angry said to his servant, Go out quickly onto the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in hither the poor and the maimed, and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto his servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you, that none of these men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. And there were great multitudes with him. And he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me, and hate not his father, and mother, and wife, and children, and brethren, and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever does not bear his cross, and come after me, cannot be my disciple. Which of you intended to build a tower, sit not down first, and counted the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Less happily, after he had laid the foundation, and is not able to finish it, all that behold it began to mock him, saying, This man began to build, and was not able to finish. What king going to make war against another king, sit not down first, and consider consulted whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand. Or else, while the mother is yet a great way off, he sent her an ambassador and desired condition of peace. So likewise, whosoever be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if his salt have lost his saving, where it which shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the donkey. But men cast it down. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. So reads the holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Now please. Can you turn your Bibles please to Luke chapter 14? And my text this morning will be taken from verses 25 and 26. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 and 26. And I'll read those two verses again. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me, and hate not his father, and mother, and wife, and children, and brethren, and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now our text begins with these very revealing words. And there went great multitude with him. We are not given the exact number of this crowd. However, there is at least one scriptural reference as to the number that comprises the multitude. And that can be found in 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 13. And what this gives us, it gives us an idea of the great, the number of this great multitude that followed Christ. So in 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 13, we read, And behold, 
there came a prophet unto Ahab, king of Israel, saying, Thus said the Lord, Hast thou seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into thine hand this day, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. So we see there in 1 Kings chapter 20, an indication, the, the phrase great multitude is used. Now, if we go down a few verses later, in verse 29 of 1 Kings chapter 20, we read, And they pitched one over against the other seven days. And so it was that in the seventh day the battle was joined, and the children of Israel slew of the Syrians a hundred thousand footmen in one day. So we see here that a hundred thousand Syrian footmen fell. Now, that is not the end there, because if you go on to the next verse, in verse 30, we read that the war fell on another 27,000. So a great multitude in this instance was at least 127,000. So what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to give us a picture of the amount of people that followed the Lord Jesus Christ and then we look at the words that came from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there are other references to great multitudes in both the Old and the New Testament. But in all these references we don't have the exact figures. But there is one scripture I'd like to draw to your attention. And that's in Revelation chapter 7 verse 9. And I'd like to draw it to your attention because, you know, I believe that many of us here will be in this one in Revelation. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9. We're informed that a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. So we see here a great multitude, and it says, which no man can number. So this must be millions and millions of people. So we're looking at that word, great multitude. So what does the human author mean there, which is Dr. Luke? Because Dr. Luke is the human author of Luke. As always, the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit and it used men to write his word. So from these numbers that we have read, especially in First King, I really believe that we're talking about at least hundreds of people following the Lord Jesus Christ, if not thousands. Now I would like you to keep this figure in mind as you go on looking at those two verses because it's very, very key. And the reason why I'd like you to keep it in mind is because of what the Lord Jesus Christ said. You realize that what he said is different from what men like Bill Hybels says in the Secret Sensitive Church. Or maybe um, men such as Rick Warren in his Bobo's Different Church. Completely different. You know, what Jesus Christ said is completely different from what you heard from those men. And that's why I'd like you to keep those numbers in mind. Now, Christ begins his address with this great multitude in verse 26. We're back in Luke chapter 14. He describes the conditions for becoming his disciples. That is, what are the conditions for becoming a follower of Christ? What are the conditions for becoming a Christian? Now, before I continue, I need to make it very clear that I believe that it is God who converts his people to become disciples of Christ. Now, please, I don't really want to be misunderstood here. I'm not saying that it's in our hands to become Christians. You know, I still believe that it's God that brings conversion. So, but that stated, 
it is fair to say that God still commands us to repent. He commands human beings to repent. And He commands us, regardless of whether we are able to obey His command. It's very important that we understand these distinctions. The other thing I'd like to draw to attention is our incapability or the incapability of a natural man of not obeying the gospel is a moral incapability, it's not a physical incapability. And so we would do well to submit to God's command. Now, what am I saying here? Let me give you a scenario before I continue. Now, if you've got a child, that child is blind. And now you put a piece of paper in front of that child and say, read what is in that paper. Now that would be cruel. Because that child is blind, that child cannot physically read what you tell that child to read. But let's say the child has got clear sight. You know, you've, you've gone to the um, optometrist, I think it's called optometrist, the, those the eye specialists, and they confirm that yes, the child can see nothing wrong. They give that child this instruction to read this book. And the child says, I'm not reading it. So you know that there's a difference between those two, isn't it? The second child, the reason why it's not reading is not a physical incapability, it's a moral incapability. That child is rebelling against the authority to read. And that's what I'm trying to say here. You see, the ability, incapability to repent is not a physical one at all, it's a moral one. And I'll be going through a number of scriptures as we carry on that will indicate Finally, and you know, I'm just giving these analogies here because some people may be asking, may be complaining, why should God command us to repent when He knows we can't? And so, I'm jumping to The first reason I gave is that, you know, He has the right to command us to do anything because He created us, you know, and we do well to obey Him. The second reason is because, again, our incapability to obey His command is not. Physical is moral. And the final one is that, you see, as humans who have been tainted by sin, we are not in any position to question God's command. We are not in any position to question what God has commanded us to do. You see, when God gives His directives, He gives His orders to be obeyed. And as humans, we do very well to obey God. Because God is not arguing with us. And I'll give you a very quick example. Now when you open up the Bible, the first few words you see is in the beginning, God. That's how he introduces himself to us. He doesn't go on any apologetics trying to justify why he is God or why he, he obey, why we should obey him or why should we should treat him as God. No, he just introduces himself and he leaves the other. For he knows one thing, those who ignore his word, they ignore it to their own eternal peril. So we who have been tainted by sin, we're not in any position to question what God does. And the verse from scripture actually puts this point in its correct perspective. And that can be found in Romans chapter 9, verse 20. But to provide the context, I'll read from verse 17, Romans chapter 9. And this point is about the fact that we who have been tainted by sin, we're not under any position to question what God commands us to do. Romans chapter 9, I read from verse 17. For the scripture said unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore, have he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will harden, 
in argument. Thou wilt say then unto me, why doth he find fault for who hath resisted his will? Nay, but O man, who art thou that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? So if you are familiar with Exodus, actually, this reference in Romans chapter 9 is going back to Pharaoh, actually. And Paul is commenting on what God did with Pharaoh. And when you look at the context of this verse in terms of Pharaoh, Pharaoh was not a man who was seeking God. He was a wicked, arrogant man. And as a matter of fact, when Aaron and Moses came to him and told him that this is what God commands you to do, Pharaoh lied. He said, who is God that I should obey him? Now you might ask me, how do I know that Pharaoh lied? You know, he genuinely didn't know God. But according to scripture, every human being knows God. The reason why we fake it is because scripture says we suppress the truth in unrighteousness and that was what Pharaoh was doing. He was suppressing the truth he knows of God in unrighteousness. So Christ informs us in verses 26 and 27, we're back to Luke chapter 14, that if any man come to him and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. We see in this verse how we need to do away with very important relationships in our desire to become the Christ's disciples. These relationships can be split into two. Relationships by birth and relationships by choice. Also Christ commands us to hate what is most dear to us, our own life. He provides a description of the extent that we should hate those things that we hold so much dear. When in verse 27 he commands us to associate ourselves with the most despised instrument of first century Israel. You see, you see many people wearing the cross today on their necks. Many people don't really understand the shame associated with the cross in first century Israel. It's not something that anyone wanted to be associated with because it was something reserved for the worst and the basis of criminals. And I'll spare you the details of how people who were crucified on the cross, how they died. It's not very pleasant hearing. It's very awful. And the two things on Christ's side, whose legs were broken, they were spared the most excruciating part of that punishment when their legs were broken so that they can die quickly. But that's not how it's typically someone crucified dies. It's, I, I don't really want to go into the details. But as you know, in the narrative, Christ's legs were not broken because obviously God has providentially made the fact that that would not be the case with it. So what does Christ mean when he commands us to hate those relations we have at birth or by choice? Does it mean that we should have mutual hatred for our wives, for example, for our children, for our brothers, for our sisters? Does that, is it what it means? Well, if that is what I say it means, then to be honest, I've been doing injustice to the Bible because there are other scriptures that we need to look at, that will give us an understanding of what these means. But before we get to those, there are some scriptures that specifically inform us, instruct us that we should love people in these relationships. And I'll give you three examples. The first one is in Luke chapter 6. And in Luke chapter 6, 
I'll read from verses 27 to 28. And this Luke chapter 6, actually it's one verse, I mean there's an equivalent in Matthew as well. It's one that makes you know that Christ does not mean literal hatred. Because the kind of people that he commands us to love are not the kind of people that we naturally love. And let me read those verses. But I say unto you, which here, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you. Bless them that curse you and pray for them which despitefully use you. So we see that Christ commands us to love our enemies. So it can't be literal hatred because it can't say we should love our enemies on one part and then we should now hate our brothers and sisters, our wives and husbands on the other part. That would make sense. But let me give you another scripture. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25. And that's for us men. You know, it's a command to us men and it's a command from God to us. And maybe men will intend to marry as well. And it says here, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for it. So Christ commands us to love our wives. So you see those two. So it can't be literal then. So I'll give you some Old Testament and New Testament scriptures to give us what Christ means here about he who does not hate his brother, sister, wife, what does it actually mean? And let's start our journey. Let's start with Deuteronomy chapter 13. And Deuteronomy chapter 13 actually makes some very, very interesting revelations. And that's why you know that the New Testament is a commentary on the Old Testament. You know, there is a playback between both Testaments that, you know, you know sure that this can only be written by God, the Bible. So Deuteronomy chapter 7, sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 13, and I read from verse 6. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 6. If thy brother, the son of thy mother, or thy son, or thy daughter, or the wife of thy bosom, or thy friend, which is at thy own soul, entice thee secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods which thou hast not known, thou nor thy fathers, namely, of the gods of the people which are round about thee, nigh unto thee. Or far from thee, from the one end of the earth even unto the other end of the earth, thou shalt not consent unto, nor hearken unto, neither shalt thy eye pity, neither shalt thou spare, neither shalt thou conceal him, but thou shalt surely kill him, thy hand shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people, and thou shalt stone him with stones that he died because he had sought to trust thee away from the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. I mean, notice that. Notice the kind of people God commands to be put to death. And not only that, but he commands that they be exposed. So, the scenario we're talking about here is maybe a wife tries to entice her husband. Let's go and worship this false God. The husband, not only should he rebuke the wife, but should actually expose her and bring her to be stones to death. And he should be the first one to cast the first stone upon her. Now, what I'm trying to bring out here is that what Christ is demanding is not something new at all. It's something in the Old Testament. But let me come to the next one. Leviticus chapter 10. And for those who don't know, Leviticus is the book after Exodus. Leviticus chapter 10. And I read from verses 1 to 3. 
Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of El, took either of them his censer, and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went up fire from the Lord, and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said unto Aaron, This is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that came nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. So we see here, God has slain Aaron's two sons. I think at this point he had four sons. He's killed two of them. And what did they say? How did Aaron respond? He held his peace. He didn't question God's right to take his sons away. He held his peace. He submitted to what God had done. Let me go to the next one. And this next one is very, very interesting. Why I say interesting is because this was a classic example. See, what we read in Deuteronomy 13 is a scenario that should occur. But what you're going to read in our next thing is something that actually happens in a historical event. And to top it all, Pastor covered it with us a few Sundays ago. And that can be found in 1st Samuel chapter 20. First Samuel chapter 20. So we need to get the verse. First Samuel chapter 20. Okay, verse 30. So, first Samuel chapter 20, verse 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said unto him, Thou son of the perverse, rebellious woman, do not I know that thou hast chosen the son of Jesse to thine own confusion? And unto the confusion of thy mother's nakedness. For as long as the son of Jesse liveth upon the ground, thou shalt not be established, nor thy kingdom. Wherefore, now see and now send and fetch him unto me, and he shall surely die. So at this point, Saul is telling Jonathan to bring David, so that David could be murdered. And Jonathan answered Saul his father and said unto him, Wherefore shall he be slain? What have you done? So he's challenging his father. Why do you want to kill David? What's David done? What why do you have to kill him? Let's carry on. And Saul cast a javelin at him, that is at Jonathan, to smite him, whereby Jonathan knew that it was destined of his father to slay David. So Saul actually wanted to kill his own son because Jonathan would not share in the murderous plot that Saul had against David. So Jonathan arose from his table in fierce anger. And why won't he? I will, I will be angry. And did, not, did eat no meat the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had done him shame. That is a classic example of where Christ commands us to hate those who are close to us. The hatred Jonathan had for his father was not a loathing hatred. No. 
Jonathan was loyal to God. And his loyalty to God means that he was willing to stand up to his father and say, no, we're not going to do this. And in the process, Jonathan himself, his life was at risk. Now that's the kind of loyalty Jesus Christ is demanding from those who want to follow him. I'll give you two New Testament scriptures actually also that give us some insight into what Jesus Christ is talking about. In Matthew chapter 10, I read from verse 33. Matthew chapter 10, verse 33. And he reads, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth, and come not to send peace but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And the man's force shall be there of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose me. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. So as you can see here, Christ is brutally honest about what awaits us when we become his followers. He doesn't hide anything at all. He's very, very honest, brutally honest with us. One more scripture before we carry on. Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. Now the brother shall betray the brother to death, and the father the son, and children shall rise up against their parents and shall cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of one man for my name's sake, for he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. So we see here different divisions that the Christian faith will bring when you become a Christian. Many people around you, they will hate you. They will love you. Obviously, it's not you they suddenly love. It's not you they suddenly hate. It's the God in you who's working his way in you. That's the one they hate. And suddenly they realize that this friend that they once had is no longer the same person. And I hate what this person has become. And I can name a few examples. I know a sister who had a friend for over 20 years. And that friend, they've been having some battles in the last three years of their friendship. And then there was this day when this friend literally lashed out at her in full force. And they've not spoken to each other since. You know, it's, it's, it's just classic. And that will go on many at times. So these are just a few examples. And what is Christ demanding from us? He's demanding from us that He should be the center of everything that we do. That any love we have for other people, even our own lives, should seem like hatred compared to the love we have for Him. Christ will not accept anything less than 100%. So when you say we've got 99.9% for him and not 0.1% for anything else, he won't accept that. What Christ wants from us is 100%. Now I'm not saying that we'll be perfectly given 100%, but we're still giving 100% even though we're not going to be perfect at that. But he demands it from those who want to follow him. And what we'll be looking now, because some people may ask, what right does Christ have in demanding this from us? Especially for those who are not Christians, you might be wondering, you know, who does he think he is? That might be what's going on in your mind. Well, I'll give you some reasons why Christ has the right to ask 
for 100% devotion from us. And the first reason is because He is our Creator. You know, Jesus Christ is our Creator. And what I'll do is I'll break it down into two subtopics for us to have a better understanding. The first subtopic is still our Creator. Now, He's giving you everything that you have. He did not create you as an animal, but He created you as a human being in His own image. If you're familiar with the creative narrative in Genesis, the text says, let us make man in our own image. You can understand that that's a problem. Let us make man. And then the next verse says, God made man in his own image, singular. So we know so far from the Bible that God is revealed in plurality, but it exists in singularity. Now, many people may say, I can't work that out. Well, you're not meant to work it out. God doesn't write His word for us in our little minds to be able to work it out. He writes His word for us to believe and submit to it. That's why God writes His word. If every Christian can say that if anyone says they want to understand every single word of God, then nobody will become Christians. Because God is infinitely greater than we are. So we would never ever be able to work out every single thing. We just submit to it by faith. So as a creator, He's created you in His image. He's giving you the ability, for example, to see, to hear, to taste, to enjoy nourishment. Think about the fact that you can eat, for example. You can settle down to a nice meal. I mean, I began to appreciate this about, I think it was about nine years ago, when I had tonsillitis. For, for, for a start, I didn't even know what it was. I thought it was just a sore throat. So, I managed to work till 4 p.m. I didn't want to take it. The afternoon after, I managed to work to 4 p.m., which was the earliest I could leave work. And I went home. And I told my wife, I said, I think I need to go to bed because I'm not feeling too great. And then I woke up, I think about four or five hours later. By that time, I was really bad. I thought it was in the morning. I didn't realize that it was just 11 p.m. at night. But I knew I had to go to hospital. And about that time, my whole throat was completely swollen. To cut a long story short, I was treated at hospital. But for a few days, I couldn't eat, I couldn't taste, I couldn't swallow anything. And I felt well. You know, I've been saying grace before my meal before then. But ever since, every grace I say before my meal, I mean it totally. And why do I mean it? Because I've experienced what it means not to be able to eat. And these are some of the things that God does for us that we take for granted. What about the sense of smell? Again, that was taken away from me during the coronavirus, when I got the virus, I wasn't able to smell anything. And suddenly I realized how important these things are. What about our body, our ability to walk, to sit down, to do many various things? You know, the nerves that work, you know, the things that prevent us from having pain. There are millions of things that God has given to us. Key thing. Why shouldn't he have the right to tell us what to do when he's actually creating us? But the second subtopic to this is slightly different, and it's the fact that God is our provider. Now, first, have you considered the fact that everything in this world belongs to God? In Psalm chapter 24, we read, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell in them. For he had founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. 
So we're told here that the psalm says that everything in this world belongs to God. So next time you see an aeroplane take off from an airport, know that that aeroplane belongs to God. Yes, he might not be the physical owner of it, but he gave those who designed the aeroplane the ability to design it and to the pilot to fly it and, and take it up in the air. But there are many things we need to look at. The other thing is that Jesus Christ has providentially placed him in the United Kingdom. Why do I say this? Well, the United Kingdom is one of the richest countries in history, not just in the world today, but in the history of our world. Have you ever thought about the rights you have as a citizen of this country? The fact that even as we complain at this cost of living crisis, and having paid only spends about 8% of its earnings on food, compare that to a country like Kenya, where almost 50% of the earnings is spent on food. Now it's not because the Kenyans are greedy people that want to spend all their money on food. No, no, no. It's because they barely earn much and food is so expensive in comparison to their earnings that that's how much they have to spend on food. Now I'm not even talking about poorer countries like Kenya now because Kenya is still one of the average countries in Africa. There are still poorer countries where people spend even more of the income on food. But there is more also. You know that you live in a country where your rights are respected. You see, you can't be thrown into prison without a reason. I used to have a friend, he's now retired, he worked in the Met. And he told me, he said, that for him to make an arrest, he has to justify that arrest on three different levels. He can't just pick up somebody and take him to prison. He himself could be in prison for them. That doesn't exist in many countries in the world. Have you also considered the fact that all the things you enjoy have been placed on your lap? You've not worked for any of them. You see, many people think that because they're Brits, it's because there's something special in them. No, it's God that determines our bounds and habitation. And I'll just give you, I mean, there are so many scriptures that infer that, but there's a scripture that actually directly mentions it. And I suppose God has to do this to cut us to size. And in Acts chapter 17, I read from verse 24, it says, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is he worshipped with men as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and that made of one blood all nations of men, for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and I determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. So God, before eternity, before he ever created us, has decided where in the world will be placed, which citizens of which country will become. So your being a prince today is not of your own doing at all. You may argue, oh yeah, but my prince will be, that is not even of their own doing, it's all because God made it to be so. So we have looked at the first reason why Christ has the right to command us to make him the center of our lives. And now we look at the second reason. Now the second reason is mostly relevant to us Christians, but for non-Christians you do well to understand this as well because it might be key into you becoming a Christian. Now the second reason why Christ has the right and authority to make 
the command that He be the center of our lives is because He came into this world to obey God's law perfectly on behalf of God's people. He then went onto the cross to die a painful death so that God's people can receive forgiveness for our sins. You see, as Pastor has mentioned several times, Christ came into this world to save His people from the penalty and the power of sin. The root cause of sin in us is pride, a completely disregard for the right of God to rule over us. That's the root cause of sin. That's why our first parents sinned Adam and Eve. Christ demands that we make Him the center of our lives. He demands that our lives are lived for His glory alone. And you see, not doing this is sinning against Him. So Christ is telling us to repent of our self-centeredness. To put this matter in this correct perspective, I will take you on a brief biblical journey to understand the extent of what Christ has done for his people. Now the first fact about Christ is that he is God incarnate. He came into this world in human flesh. Now before Christ was born, he existed in eternity, in heaven with his Father, God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, they were all in unison, in unity. But God was determined to save His people. And the only way He could do it without um, jeopardizing His justice is for someone to take the punishment of His people. And just imagine Christ when He had to leave that wonderful place in heaven, when He had to come into the womb of a human being. Just imagine the amount of glory and everything that Christ had to leave behind. He had to come into this sin-filled world. Not only that, when he got into this world, he didn't come as a rich person. He didn't come to rich parents. <laughs> now you might ask me, how do I know that Christ did not come into this world as a rich person? Well, I give you two scriptures for that. The first one we found in Leviticus. And Leviticus is just after Exodus. And that would be in Leviticus chapter 12. And I'll just read one verse from verse 6. No, actually, I'll read more verses, but I'll start from verse 6. Leviticus chapter 12. I'll start from verse 6. And when the days of her purifying are fulfilled for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring a lamb of the first year for a burnt offering, and a young pigeon or turtle for a sin offering. Unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, unto the priest, who shall offer it before the Lord and make an atonement for her, and she shall be cleansed from the issue of her blood. This is the law for her that hath born a male or a female. And if she be not able, notice that, if she not be able to bring a lamb, then she shall bring two torches or two young pigeons, the one for the burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make an atonement for her and shall be clean. So we see that from that narrative that the requirement was a lamb. That was a requirement. And then there was a proviso for someone who cannot afford a lamb. Then bring two pigeons and two turtles. Now let's look for a second text. That can be found in Luke. Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. And I'll read from verse 22. Luke chapter 2, verse 22. And when the days of our purification, according to the law of Moses, was accomplished, 
They brought him to Jerusalem, that's Jesus Christ, to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of God, every male that opens up the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Verse 24. And to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. See? So, that's what they could afford. And so that's the indication that Jesus Christ did not come into a rich family, he came to a poor family. But it doesn't end there. You see, Jesus Christ was not born into a perfect world as our first spirit was created into. He was born into a sin-filled world. Now just imagine, Jesus Christ, the only sinless man who has ever lived, he now has to live amongst sinful people. People who not only think different from him, but think contrary to him. People who hate him. They hate the very fact that he existed. Now if you do some study, on the Gospels. I remembered many years ago when I began studying my Bible on a daily basis, I began studying the book of John. What amazed me was the fact that it was right from the beginning of his ministries, they were plotting to kill him. Right from the beginning, and that plot continued. It was just how much he was hated. So not only was he completely perfectly sinless, he was in a world of hostility. He had no true friends. He had no people who truly loved him. I mean, yes, many maybe can say he had 12 disciples, but we all know what occurred. When the day came, they all fled. And Peter actually was cursing, denying him. See, so we, we have to understand this in this context. For what Christ did for us Christians. Now, having said that, there are three relationships that Christ commands us to hate in comparison to loving Him. And those relationships are relationships. The first one is relationship that we have by birth. And these are our father, we're back to Luke chapter 14, our father, mother, children, brethren, and sisters. Our skipped wife, but we'll come to that later. So Christ is commanding us to love Him more than we love our close relatives. He commands us that any love we have for them should seem like hatred compared to the love we have for him. Now understand that this will be difficult, but Christ demands this, and from time to time there will be occasions when we'll have to show evidence in our lives that this is what we're doing. For example, you will need to show more love to a believer who is not your child compared to the love to show to your own child who is an unbeliever. Let me give you a very good example. Your unbelieving child comes to you with his or future spouse. You spoke to the future spouse and from the conversation you know straight away that this future spouse is a believer. Gave a testimony that's not going to doubt that this person is a believer. And you know that your child is not a Christian. What do you do as a parent? Well, what you do is you draw the attention of the spiritual spouse to what scripture says. And you tell, you can't marry my child, as difficult as it is in bed. Because you're a believer, my child is not a believer. And by marrying my child, you'll be committing sin against God. And you do everything you can to ensure that that doesn't go ahead. You know, that's a classic example of showing more love to Christ than even to your own child. Let me give you another example. 
Your child has been baptized at your local church. And then a few years later, or maybe a few months later, your child begins to show behavior inconsistent with the faith that they profess. What do you do? Well, you speak to your child first as a parent should do. When you see that speaking to your child is not going to, you know, it won't change their mind, then you have to bring it to the attention of the church. And if necessary, maybe the child needs to be excommunicated. Now, these are very difficult decisions to make. They're not easy. But when we love Christ, those are what we should do. For we know that we can't do things that will be against his interest. So we've looked at the first relationship that Christ commands us to hate compared to him. Let's look at the second form of relationship. And these are relationships that we choose. And these include wives, husbands, friends, business associates, work colleagues, and you know, maybe some hobbies. Now this relationship is dearest to us, especially if it's our spouse, if it's our wife, if it's our husband. But God commands that any love we show to our spouse must seem like hatred compared to the love we show to Him. How do we do that? We ensure that we don't compromise on anything associated with God. There might be times when conflict may arise between us and our spouse, and those may be very difficult times. But our loyalty always should be to the Lord Jesus Christ. And everything we do must be for Him, for His glory. I mean, let me take you again to Matthew chapter 10, verse 24. Sorry, Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Now, Jesus Christ said these very important words, and they're very important for us to understand. He says, Think not that I'm come to send peace on earth. I'm come not to send peace for a sword. For I've come to set a man a variance against his father, and daughter against her mother, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. A man's fault shall be of his own household. So, you know, as Christians, when we choose relationships, we should be willing to terminate those relationships. As I mentioned of a sister earlier, if so relationship will be against our interest with God. But I need to make a caveat here. I mean to make an exclusion here. Because there is one I mentioned earlier about marital relationship. There's a special way of dealing with that. And for that, please let's go to First Corinthians chapter 7. Because there is a way of, you see, when you're married, according to Malachi, God hates divorce. And the marriage is a sanctity that has been created by God, and it doesn't really want divorce except it's the last resort. So let's go to First Corinthians chapter seven to deal with a situation where you're a Christian but your spouse is not a Christian. First Corinthians chapter seven, I read from verse thirteen. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him. Let him not put her away. And the woman which had an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, for now are they holy. For if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, for God hath called us to peace. So, what 
to seven percent is that if you have an unbelieving spouse, if they want to carry on with the relationship, let them carry on, carry on with it. Don't divorce. But the spouse will have to understand that our relationship is different from what it was before. And to be quite honest, as someone who's become a Christian since they got married, the spouse will see the difference. You know, the spouse will see the difference. In this present, this is not the man I'm married. This is not the woman I'm married. This is different. And who knows, maybe God could use that to bring the unbelieving spouse to salvation. If, in spite of all these changes, the spouse says, I want to leave the married, then don't stand in their way. You know, it, it's, it's always going to be a very difficult thing, but, but the Lord says, you know, let them go. But at that point, you're no longer bound to that marriage. Now, the final thing that Christ commands us to hate in comparison to Him is the most thing that is dearest to us is our own lives. Now, look at it. It says, yeah, and His own life. I mean, as humans, we want to keep hold of our lives. We don't want to put our lives in any danger. You know, that's some of the key things that God has given to us. But Christ demands that we should love Him even more than we love our life. And Christ, again, what Christ is saying there is not new at all. If you don't mind, please turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5, and this is a law that God gave to the children of Israel, which is applicable to us. There's a New Testament equivalent, but I've opted to go for the Old Testament for us to understand the context that Jesus Christ was not speaking something new. Deuteronomy chapter 5, I read verse 6. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. See, that's the standard of love that God demands. We should love Him with everything. So when God is saying, when Christ is saying that we should love Him more than our lives, then He's not saying anything new at all. What He's saying is that even our lives at risk is not an excuse for us to deny Him. You remember Peter? Christ restored Peter after He denied Christ. At what point did Peter deny Him? If they were caught, they were going to be put to death. But Christ didn't see that as an excuse. You see, what I'm going to say now, please hear me out. And it's very important. I mean, it's pastor said it several times. So I'm not saying anything new behind this pulpit. When I think about the pandemic that hit in the past two years, the way many Christians have responded to it, it leaves a lot to be desired, to be honest. Because when Christ is commanding us that even our own lives should be subordinate to our love for Him, then what excuse do we have from God's word to change the way we worship God, to, to, to worship God by proxy, thinking that we can make a wonderful excuse to disobey God? I mean, Christ has seen everything. Christ knows the end from the beginning. This pandemic our country years ago didn't come to him as a surprise. And I believe that if he wanted us to change our ways, he would have put something in his word. That okay, in the future, this is going to happen. This is how you should handle it. Suspend, protecting your, you know, you giving up your life for me at that time. But he didn't do that. So we have looked at why Christ has the right and authority 
to make the commands contained in our text. We have looked at the two types of relationship, or three, that God commands us to hate in comparison our love to Him. And we also look at the fact that we should hate even our own lives. Now let me make a few applications before closing. When you're making these applications, I want you to understand that me, who I'm preaching here, I'll be judged with a higher standard. So please don't think that what I'm about to say here, I'm just saying it to you. I've thought about it myself, and I've thought about the implications of me not fulfilling this. Please, if you're convicted, then speak to the Lord. The Lord is the one who clears us. He's the one who forgives, and He gives us countless of opportunities to repent. So, let me ask you these questions. Do you love God to the extent that the love you have for your wife, your children, closest relatives, friends, can be described as hatred compared to the love that you have for God? Second, how much of your time and resources do you give to God? For example, do you tithe? What is time that's giving up 10% of your gross income for the furtherance of the gospel? Now you may be saying that all tithes and Old Testament is not New Testament. Well, I've got some news for you. Even Jesus Christ had something to say about tithe. And that can be found in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. And in that verse he said, Warn to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the Lord, judgment, mercy, and faith. This ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Did you notice the last few words? So it means not to leave the tithe undone. So, but let me actually go a bit further. Tithe was instituted for an agrarian people. They were not as rich as we are today. So it was least affordable then. But what I know is that the New Testament brings out into light many things that are foggy in the Old Testament. So now is the time as Christians that we should be paying our tithes. The next question, how many relationships have you severed since you became a Christian? I'm not saying that you should severe relationships for the sake of servants. However, when genuine faith is attained, many of the Christians' relationships will be severed naturally. You just suddenly realize that some friends will no longer call you again. Maybe you've had an argument with them, they say, oh no, you know, all of a sudden, oh, he doesn't go to the pub with us anymore. You know, he's holier than that. You know, he call us sorts of things. Finally, and this is very, very important. Do you remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? That is, do you reserve the Lord's day as his day? Do you do your best by keeping the sanctity of the day, by ensuring that you do not involve yourself in any form of secular entertainment? Do you also view any act of entertainment on the Lord's day as sin against God, to the extent that you refuse to even watch pre-recorded entertainment that you know were performed on the Lord's day. Now, I'm going to make a statement there that may sound harsh, but you know, we have to look at it from the Word of God. Now, there is wicked entertainment out there, an entertainment where they break the seventh commandment and they turn it out as entertainment and people watch it. Now, as Christians, we'll be revolted about that. But are they breaking the law any greater? And those who are doing entertainment on the Lord's Day, breaking the fourth commandment. They're not. And then we're watching the pre-recorded of the entertainment of the Lord's Day, 
we, you know, we're we doing the same thing as those who are watching the pre-recorded of the seventh commandment breakers. So, you know, as Christians, we need to think about these things. You know, Christ never said that following Him would be easy. But you know, there's an alternative to following Christ in the manner of ways that He commands us to. Now, what's that alternative? That alternative is eternal punishment in the lake of fire. That's what it is. You know, the relationship that Christ commanded us to do away with, to hate, compare it with our love to Him, we're going to lose those relationships one day anyway, on the day we die. I mean, we're not going to die with, you know, taking all those relationships with us. So why can't we do away with them now? For the right reason. For the reason of following Christ. Knowing that even as we follow Christ, there will be more relationships. Better relationships. Now let me tell you about the sister I mentioned, who lost her friend of over 20 years. Now God has brought new friends to her within Christendom that are much profitable to her than the friend that she has. I mean, the strength of the sister's friend, they were very close, very close friends. You know, over a period of 20 years. But what? You see, a child of God who loses something, God always replaces it with better things. Because what we thought we had is worthless anyway. It's not good for us. And God has to take it from us and give us what is really good for us. May the Lord bless His words to our souls.